0: Drew Meredith. How you going, mate? Or sort of say, Andrew Deremuth. <laughs> it's good to be back, as usual. Good to be here. It is, mate. Not it's a, always a pleasure. Not, not in not the in same presence. room for once. No, I'm in a very echoey room, so I'm going to have to be very secretive and silent. But um, yeah, yeah, recording from Sydney, mate, because I'm up here for the week. And uh, it's been a good week. I just chatted to um, somewhat one of my kinsmen, actually. Uh, I just had a... a wonderful podcast with Queenie Tan, AKA Invest with Queenie, mate. So another- The queen of Fintok? Fintok, <laughs> Finfluencer like myself, just <laughs> esteemed company. Um, how about you, mate? What have you, been, what have you been up to? I believe I was applying to, to go to a
1: festival <laughs> as you, not as Andrew <laughs> Uh Yeah,
0: yeah my I'm name's to... Owen Rask. <laughs>
1: <laughs> I've been looking at this uh, Future Proof Festival I think we were talking about it overnight as well, which is like a maybe comparable to Equity Mates, but actually targeted at financial advisors. Yeah. So Huntington Beach, somewhere out of LA, run by one of the groups that we love in the Riddle's Wealth Guys um, mm-hmm. with Animal Spirits and their other podcasts. So uh, Owen and I applying as... Influencers,
0: quotation marks. If you're I'm more than happy to pay the full, full price. Yeah. <laughs> we just want to go. Um, no, cool, mate. Yeah. Um, well, I'll, I'll tell you some other stuff that uh, I've been working on. Actually, I'm working on it this week in Sydney. Uh, we're just doing some rounds with some event-style stuff, just testing the water, uh, just getting a, a reception, obviously, the FinFest event from Equity Max is coming up, as you just mentioned, which is going to be cool. But we're going to be doing a few of our own and in, hopefully in partnership as well with Inside Network, which would be great. But uh, we've got a really interesting interview tomorrow with um, one of the co-founders of Judo Bank. So that will be airing on our Australian uh, business podcast. They're a big business lender, aren't they? Yeah, they're just basically business lending, as far as I know. And it's like small to medium businesses. And it's uh, it was co-founded by David Hornery, and uh joseph healy and the the two gents are like career bankers but they're so they're just incredible both of them like i mean joseph has like five master's degrees or something like this it's he's just like they're just both like avid learners and it's it's really cool it's really cool so that will be airing on the australian business podcast um but i mean we've got heaps to get to we've been doing an etf series on self-wealth we just stepping through we've got all of the big ETF providers in Australia are taking part in that series, so that's a fun. But Drew, that's awesome. credit to you. Credit, thank you. <laughs> I do have a, uh, I do have a couple of buy hold sells for you. I know that <laughs> like, every week uh, people tune into the two cents on a Saturday morning, and they just want a bit of banter. But the thing that they really want is buy hold sell from Drew Meredith, aka Andrew. <laughs> Um, and You uh, can't
1: work out which, which alias I am anymore sometimes.
0: I just, just when I walk in at
1: home, and it's Andrew. I'm like, nope.
0: <laughs> which one do you want? I can just split personality soon. <laughs> Drew's going to end up in a, in a facility in about five years.
1: <laughs> rates are going um, down. Rates are going down. Rates yeah. are going down.
0: So uh, buy, hold, sell, small cap ETFs. Can I have a buy and a sell? On the okay, same okay. one.
1: Small okay, caps, okay. yes. I mean, small caps, global, domestic, super interesting at the moment. They're most generally underperformed large cap indices, so look attractive, haven't rallied as much as large caps, so I think there's value there. Mm-hmm. Um, ETFs, they tend to all be index ETFs, which aren't necessarily perfect. So I'm like a buy on the asset class and a maybe a hold on the ETF.
0: Okay, because ETFs for small caps probably aren't the best vehicle.
1: That's yeah. That's uh, we will probably talked about. It's one of the asset classes we like to do active, because it while well, the Spiva data shows that most large cap Aussie managers struggled outperform. A lot of small cap managers, active and global, uh, historically mm. have a larger proportion have outperformed. Yeah. Okay. Something. Uh, one of the interesting things there was a the global small cap index ended up having all the meme stocks in it.
0: Oh, for a right. period
1: of time which i don't think a lot of people necessarily saw that when it came through
0: oh yeah i think i remember you mentioning that a year or two ago and saying that like, things like gamestop and all those things were like in top that 10 event. holdings yeah. yeah yeah crazy um okay buy hold sell <laughs> chocolate in the fridge that's a it's
1: gonna be a hard sell really i'm a i'm i'm a middle-aged man so i, I like dark chocolate now
0: oh yeah watch that waistline
1: yeah oh. you don't really want that in the uh in the fridge generally it's already hard enough with with less sugar in there so I tend to keep that out
0: a little bit so, soft so so you would open the chocolate and put it in the pantry yep or oh, there's we've got a yummy drawer at home a yummy drawer yeah <laughs> if only we were in person because I would like record that yummy yummy like <laughs> the Donald Trump videos or the <laughs> yeah China but have yummy um, okay well I'm definitely a chocolate in the fridge style guy this has to be but I've heard a rumor that apparently with some chocolate, it's best to keep it at a certain temperature because it doesn't melt over a certain temperature. So there is actually science behind this. I just have no idea what it is. Do you it take is. it out before you eat
1: it? Like, do you well, take it out like cheese and get it to room temperature before you eat it? No. Are I just you supposed to do that with soft cheese? Are you really? Yeah.
0: <laughs> well, I guess it would make sense. But I always feel like cheese left out for too long. Is a whole. That's a whole different thing. Some scientist on the show will write into us and be like, "Listen, guys, <laughs> spreading misinformation." Check. <laughs> we'll tell an interview with the BBC in a minute. Um, so buy, hold, sell. Last one, and I, I'm guessing you have no idea what this company. is. I
1: know about. exactly what it does. Okay, buy, hold, sell. Can tell Alt- before you even ask ask the question.
0: Uh, Altria.
1: It's yeah. It's got to be a hard sell.
0: Hard sell, Altria. This is on the New York Stock Exchange for anyone playing at home. i look at the ticket symbol MO. Why is it a buy? what is it a sell, mate? Why?
1: For me, the way I invest and in what I want to invest to, into, I just would never touch the touch this kind of company. So it's tobacco production. It was part of Philip Morris, I think, originally. Uh, so it makes cigarettes, sells cigarettes and sells, I assume, vaping uh, as well. And, um, <laughs> you know, where our businesses. B Corp, we're very focused on the sustainability part and there's just certain things that our clients don't want us exposed to and that's generally tobacco, fossil fuels. And that's like, it could be a good company. It could be a Mm. on. I just looked like a 14 times PE. looks cheap, pays a good dividend. But there's like 50,000 other companies to choose from. It's kind of, was that too harsh?
0: No, 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 that's fair. Like um, strong sell on the ethical considerations.
1: Who, Who am I... Who am I disagreeing with this? There's, there's obviously some setup behind this uh, question, well, too, isn't there?
0: No, no, no. Well, it kind of, it kind of is, and there isn't. It? It's no like I don't have an axe to grind here, but I would say that Altru is one of the best performing stocks of all time.
1: Yeah, because it sells an addictive product.
0: <laughs> <laughs> it's like Facebook. Yeah, oh, it was- sorry, Facebook. <laughs> <laughs> it's not true. Um, okay, so Altru, a very strong sell. Chocolate in the fridge, sell. <laughs> small caps, buy. ETFs for small caps, hold. Yeah. Okay. Do you, well, do do you
1: disagree? No, I didn't even put it, in, it depends in there. So There's no
0: depends. Um, But I don't know about the Altria thing. I think if you had – if you didn't have the ethical lens, just take that aside, you'd probably think it's a great product. you probably think it's like wide moat business, sells a product that people love for the wrong reasons – um, so, I don't, I don't own it. I'm not going to buy it because I just don't need to. So, I agree with you in that sense. But it is probably a good business model if we were just purely capitalists. Anyway, what else is happening? You're uh, <clears> our <throat> boots on the ground economist fair enough, in a different life. Um, so, tell us what's going on. Also, are interest rates falling?
1: Very close. So, there was more comments this week from the RBA, but most importantly overnight. So, we filmed this mm-hmm. on... Thursday, released on Saturday. Mm-hmm. Inflation in the US just fell from 6% to 5% on a rolling 12-month to March. Uh, there's still talk that there might be one more smaller rate increase, but what we've been talking, like the idea that interest rates would eventually fall or, or the the increases slow down is on the basis that inflation was eventually going to disappear. And a lot of the major measures fell overnight to the point that I think it's almost halved from 8 or 9% to 5%. In the last six months, and a whole heap of that is because it's a measure of a 12-month period. Inflation's from point to point, so as soon as you have a higher starting point, it naturally it's going to be lower 12 mm. months later. Um, so that was probably the the big news, and then you saw the RBA come out and talk about the growing range of mortgage or the growing number of mortgage prisoners. I'm not sure if you read that article during the week. I will probably covered on the property podcast too.
0: There was like a bell curve, right? There's, sorry, there's like a barbell. There's like people that are really far ahead. And then there's people that are locked in as prisoners. So, prisoners being folks that um, can't sell their house because they're in negative equity, or at least they wouldn't be able to sell and get a profit. So, they stay in the thing, or they can't refinance.
1: Because they can't get enough debt to refinance. They can't get the same level of debt to refinance because the yeah. base, the interest rate they use to calculate repayments that they can
0: afford have incre- has doubled, basically. Yeah, on the property pod, Chris, who's a mortgage broker, was saying that on average, he's seeing across his client base, the borrowing power is down 35%. It's
1: massive. Huge, yeah. And then we were talking to a few people that are going to auctions around Melbourne uh, and basically nothing's up for, there's just nothing sell, nothing's up for sale at the moment. So you've had mm-hmm. this period where sellers were still trying to get in, buyers didn't have as much money, sellers kind of gave up and mm-hmm. you're going through that period where there's probably going to be less supply for a while but not necessarily people able to sell at lower prices. So that's why I'm pointing towards, you know, we don't have the buttons today, but... <laughs> You just know it has to happen eventually. Like the pain, if you've got, there's like 16% of households are mortgage prisoners. That's a, like, that's a lot. That's millions of people. But the,
0: but the ice will crack. The, well, the only way the ice will crack is if unemployment goes up, right? So if there's, because at the moment, we've got a very tight labor market. So if that cracks, then we've got bigger issues. That's, I feel like that's the key thing.
1: Because like- You're having other past year issues though, because you've got immigration going up. So there is every risk that unemployment does go up. True, I but then with the unemployment.
0: But then the other, the, the, the thing that's kind of unique in this market, which we probably haven't seen for a while in Australia, is as house prices have fallen, we've got a huge surge in rental uh, income. Like you, because interest rates have gone up so quickly off a low base, where that migration impact is actually going to push more demand into rental markets, which supports the floor price. If you get what I'm saying.
1: Yeah, and a more of a shortage as well. So you're going to have a shortage yeah. of rental, but you're also seeing, you know, what was the Porter Davis failed? I think that was last yeah. week, maybe before we went live. Yep. And the more and more groups of, you know, construction groups are failing. So the supply of property is going to struggle for the next five years, probably three to five years. And more and more people coming in needing to rent because they can't afford buying. It's kind of, it'll create housing crisis and basically all driven by increasing interest rates. What's
0: um? What's Aggressively really interesting? Aggressively
1: increasing interest rates.
0: Yeah, I was at a family uh, lunch. You love
1: Easter lunches.
0: (laughs) And people think climate change always. (laughs) Yeah, this conversation got brought up about builders. And the general sense around from some people is that, like, the government should do more to save property developers like they saved a few during COVID. But the capitalism side of me, like, thinks that the property industry, there's a reason this happens, Right. Um, and maybe that actually prompts other changes to happen. Maybe it prompts more like an industry response that's improved. I don't know. I don't know if it make things better or worse, to be honest, for new builds and costs of new builds and stuff. But uh, anyway, I just think, like, that industry, the industry probably wants more oversight, but I don't think it's the, personally, I don't think it's the government's responsibility to, to save everyone necessarily. I don't know. Maybe that's quite controversial.
1: I don't know I don't think it's controversial at all. I think what happened during the pandemic was more about major saving major projects because of how like they employ eight to ten percent of the entire country and it was very much about ensuring they could go forward. I know a lot of smaller projects went forward at the same time but it what's the was it moral, uh, what's, the, what's the word moral lost it. Not Lost it. it. I'll come up with it later. Andrew okay. Derruth will come up with it. He's a smart one. of no, the two of us. Um, uh, there, was a, there was a glitch in the
0: system. There, there. was a glitch. <laughs> Where but, uh, uh, Andrew just, yeah. just came in and it went out. <laughs> if, you get, if you're getting bailed out, though,
1: essentially bailing groups out, then you have to share your profits back with the government too. It's kind of this, you can't just help individual sectors that have been running profitable uh for mm. for an extended period of time and and you want a level of free market but you want to make it so it doesn't destroy the economy and employment at the same time and you see that kind of in the fossil fuel industry or other parts where they try and find alternative jobs for those that are incredibly important to the uh broader economy and, and employment but mm. i think when it becomes more specific and builders you know we saw a flood of builders because it the sector was doing incredibly well, and there were massive profits. So, I think it's part of cycles. Um, the hard, I mean, the difficult part is, or not difficult, the, the disastrous and worst part is that the way the subcontracting system works. I think is where you hear that so many subcontractors never never get paid when companies collapse. So,
0: yeah, that happened to a family member of mine. It was owed a hundred thousand dollars and never. I think they got like two cents back or something crazy. Yeah, um, two, two cents on the dollar. So. Um, yeah, that happens, but also the people that put their deposits with some of these builders, um, that's probably the thing that I think about a lot as well. It's like people were still um, like signing up for house and land packages and all these types of things, which just in case anyone needs to know, signing up for a house and land package is a very risky thing um, because you're basically, you're buying an asset which is not, necess- not always a quality asset. Like it's not always a quality property. Typically established houses are better. Um, obviously more expensive, and you also take building risk. And this is like buying off the plan, which is a lot of stuff that we warn about on the property show um, generally too. So anyway, um, we're going to get to questions in a minute, Drew, though, but one final thing that I thought was a real headline this week is – Zip and Peloton decided...
1: <laughs> it in my notes, so it's always a dig there. There was no questions with Zip in it this week, so I'm happy with
0: that. So tell us a little bit more about why you're so excited about this.
1: <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> I think my... Uh- my wife's been talking about buying a treadmill. So I thought, well, this is perfect. We can buy a treadmill and fund it by Zip uh, from, from Peloton.
0: <laughs> and then if Zip goes bust, do you have to pay the money back? That's, what, that's actually
1: what I thought. If Peloton goes bust, do I have to pay them back? Or do I become, are they gonna chase me for the money <laughs> in <It'll> a lump <laughs> sum? Uh, I think we joked about the other day because we're, when we're in Sydney, you probably walked, our office is not far from Martin Place and has yeah. a, literally the most expensive real estate in Sydney. There's a massive Peloton store. Yeah. With no one in it,
0: I actually took a photo of it the other day. There was literally no one in there.
1: (laughs) Two bikes and one person. Um, I mean, these clearly, lay buying still has a role
0: to play in in industry. Uh, (laughs) (laughs) What a a defeated thesis.
1: And, yeah, I don't know what to say. It seems positive. You know, the thing is, if this, happened, it was, if this was announced in 2020, the stock would have gone up 15%. Uh, like, it would have doubled. Into how, how much I the market's moved. changed. Yeah. Well, um, the shares
0: are up 11, uh, 11% this month. That's just that's, that's rolling Ooh. 30 days. I actually so checked. Remember when we talked about Fang last year? Yeah. Remember
1: when I bought Fang?
0: Yeah. How's that doing? It's up 40%
1: in three or four months. Really? Yeah.
0: It's now just to verify numbers. That's
1: yeah, correct. I can't remember what we talked about. I think it was December. Yeah, it's yeah. Well, call the up. bottom.
0: Yeah, never 11. try and call
1: the bottom. Let's be clear on that.
0: It was in December, so just before Christmas, it was about eleven bucks. Uh, yeah, just under eleven bucks. It's now fourteen dollars forty-five. Yeah,
1: mate. Ten. I think I said I put ten percent of my super fund in there, which isn't a lot of money. <laughs>
0: <laughs> it just Sounds better when you're thirty percentage terms. <laughs> still what a genius when you think about it like but like this
1: is a i mean and getting it diversified things like nvidia are up 90 percent in so far in 2023 space meta's up 70 percent that was very
0: that was very cheap there for a while Netflix
1: 40 percent and you weren't talking about bad businesses you're just talking about a complete shift in valuations in a short period of time. So um, I don't know what I'm going to do with it now. I just want to make sure it doesn't turn into another Zip. Um, <laughs> I've kind of as off, offset my losses on Zip. There we go. Um, can we not talk about Zip anymore?
0: It's, uh, yes, we will shift gears. The actual, I remember we did a promo on the podcast for Global X, who is a sponsor of our finance podcast. And um, they the, the promo at the time was like how these businesses have a better than average chance of withstanding – Inflation because they have pricing power, they have really good capital structures, and they um, they can always cost out to improve their margins. And basically, all of those things have come true in the last six months because that's the competitive position that they have, right? So they've yeah. done really well at that. Um, the problem is that inflation mm-hmm. has an impact on bond
1: yields, and bond yields are what drives the majority of valuation. And that's yeah. where they, the businesses are doing better, but the valuation shifted. Yeah.
0: Yeah, but eventually if you position yourself, i.e. like you are now, typically we're we're seeing that ahead of the curve, right? Like we're seeing the reason the FANG has probably gone up not only from interest rates and inflation, but it's probably that forward-looking sense of investors to think, well, they're costed out now, the business is going to be stronger. Uh, Maybe one of the names might be Google and the FANG, which is more questionable now. People are a bit more hesitant, I would say, around that holding. But um. Uh, there was one final thing um, which made the news this week, mate, which I don't know much about, um, which I'm hoping you might be able to fill me in just very briefly, which is the Milk Run collapse. Uh, yeah, as far, think- as, far as, as far as I know, it's like a delivery service.
1: I never used it. I think it, well, it only just became available in Victoria a few weeks or months ago. I think.
0: Okay. Right. But
1: it's just a you know we talked about private investments and venture capital and private equity a few weeks ago, and it's mm-hmm. just a, a a story and showing how how much the industry or the if financial markets have changed in like two years. So Milk Runner was like, we'll deliver basically a range, I think it was something like 50 or 100 products to your door within 20 minutes. So they had this massive, like a Uber, but on a more local level. So you get milk, bread, all those sort of things. And they charged a premium. They raised like 75 million last year from the biggest venture capital mm-hmm. groups in the world. Uh, but the, the news was saying they were losing like $13 for every delivery they were making. <laughs> So, it's, so you obviously, the, the the days of where of basically growing customers and getting customer growth and get, raising more money on the base that that part was growing have ended pretty abruptly. This group had two or three other competitors in the sector and they fell fell over like three or four months before. Um, and then this group where I think it sounds like the founder who also founded Koala did the right thing, which was he's closed before he ran out of money. Um, oh, and right. According to the news, was able to pay out you know a proper package to all 400 remaining employees. Um, I'm sure there'll be people that you know maybe were moved on before that and missed out, but it's just showing how the idea of you know sales or revenue at any cost without any profit is has completely shifted. And more than ever, it's uh, earnings and profit is becoming the most important thing, particularly when interest rates and you know low risk investments
0: are becoming more attractive. I was chatting to uh, Daniel and Jordan, who co-hosts the Australian Business Podcast for us, and they were saying that they saw a private business not too long ago that had negative gross margins. <laughs> and, and the um, be this. Yeah, yeah, a lot of them did. And but the, the the founder was thinking, well, why aren't I profitable? Maybe if I just put more money into it. <laughs> so that's started <laughs> like taking a bad idea and injecting it with steroids, and it just becomes a bigger bad idea. It's so also the
1: story of venture capital though. So like for every Canva, there I think there's something like 98 companies that never make it more than like three years. Yeah. So for every 100 bagger, there's like, I think 90% of venture capital ca- companies fail because a lot of them are an idea and they never get to, to scaling. Mm-hmm. So that's the difficulty in that sector and why it, it takes patience. And that's why we've talked about private markets a lot. Mm-hmm. But when they're good, they're great. Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah, true. Okay, Matt, let's get to some questions. Um, as always, we take questions on the Australian Investors Podcast each and every week. We answer your questions at 7 a.m. Saturday morning in our less serious episodes. We call them Two Cents. Just a, Everyone loves a disclaimer. They just can't get enough of these disclaimers, but they always say that it's the highlight of their week. So uh, if we do answer your question, please remember that we do not know your personal circumstances. So it is important that you speak to a financial planner like Drew here who can give you uh, personalized advice. Uh, Anything that we do deliver on the show is strictly limited to general financial advice only, Um, but at the end of the day, a lot of it is just us just sharing factual information and just general information that you should really consider how it applies to your circumstances before you act on it. Uh, As always, we will award this week's uh, best question and name, uh, and you'll have to self-identify by sending us an email. And I've read through the questions. Great names. And this week probably has... I would say some of the best question name, questionnaire names of all time. So I'm super excited to get to this because there's a lot of play on words. There's a lot of going, going on here, but we do have a lot of questions, Drew, so- we A few deramets in there. Drew has a lot of deramets. <laughs> there's a few deramets, so I can tell you that much. Um, but we will try and be quick. Maybe we'll try and limit our answers to two or three minutes, Max. Good luck. Good luck. Um, okay, so the first question comes from, let's unpack that. <laughs> <laughs> which is favorite of, word for those of you that are new to the series drew hates that word unpack i think was the other one unprecedented
1: yeah no oh yeah and right sizing
0: oh right sizing unprecedented a so let's unprecedented unpack, unpack and right sizing okay if you can come up with any of those in the future you will <laughs> um okay so the question is with a long term investing horizon or 15 years or more and no retirement inside. Maybe it's just like Benjamin Button. Is there any point in holding both VAS and VHY? If not, what are the advantages of each? So just to confirm, the VAS ETF is Australia's biggest ETF, invests in the ASX 300. The VHY ETF is an Australian shares ETF as well, but it only targets shares that will pay dividends in the future. So it's one of those dividend ETFs.
1: True. I mean, there's probably a case to include both. Now you've got your pure index exposure that will, if you think about how the ASX 300 works, it's market cap weighted. So the larger the business, the the larger the allocation it gets in the index. But it doesn't really change that much. It takes a float or you know massive performance from a company for the for the you know more than a one percent change in that uh, in the co- you know the constitution or the composition of that index. Whereas VHY is almost I know not highly active, but it's almost an active strategy. Mm. Because it's rebalanced quarterly for a memory, mm. and it will actually follow momentum a little bit. So because it's buying the companies it's expecting to pay the highest dividends, more recently it's had a lot more in materials and commodities companies, and then say six, 12 months ago had a lot more in banks. So it will almost be more of an active momentum play. Um, and then looking at the allocations, there will be a lot of you know, a lot of. Um, overlap, which is always the issue because the biggest dividend paying companies tend to be the biggest mm-hmm. companies in Australia as well. But VHY is much more concentrated, so 61% in the top 10 holdings versus VAS, which is 44% in the top 10. So I think you could probably make case for both, but you'd probably have a lower weighting to, the, to yield and you'd have your
0: core in. Yeah. I think it's a good tactical play, as you were just saying, that I think VHY can be a tweak in your core or a tweak in your satellite, like if you take a three-year view, like, for example, if you think that income is going to be more important to you over the next three years, or maybe you think that income, like dividend-paying stocks, is a worthwhile tilt in a portfolio over three to five years, maybe you take, a, 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 a I guess, a bet there. Um, I could see why you would have both, although, I, as you said, I wouldn't have them in equal measure. For me, yeah. even, even if you're a retiree, I think that you still want that benefit of extra diversification and you can always sell some more capital gains. You don't always have to take dividends as your income stream, right, if you're in that situation. It's a good question. That's a really important question. Um, Warren Buffett's Warren of Buffets says, hi, guys, long time listener. Love the pod. I recently read Hundred Baggers by Christopher Mayer. By the way, he's on Twitter, just in case you want to know. In the book, he talks a lot about a company's compound annual growth rate, but never really explains what to think about when assessing this metric. Would you guys be able to shine any light on this? I think conceptually, I understand what CAGR, C-A-G-R, just FYI, is, but I'm not too sure how to assign a quantitative value to it. So, I mean, there are many different ways. Um, Maybe I'll just quickly just riff on this. CAGR, as it's pronounced, C-A-G-R, compound annual growth rate, is basically just growth on growth. So it's it's a fancy way of expressing Um, compound interest and we uh, in finance we love jargon in investing we love jargon it's just compound growth so it's basically saying not what is the average annual growth what's the growth and growth and growth worth and there are multiple ways to measure it quantitatively so for example you can measure it at the top line which is revenue or sales how fast is that grown and typically that's what a lot of growth investors are looking for initial traction from the top line sales and revenue Uh, but you can even do it further down in cash flows or basically anything. CAGR metric is also worthwhile for established businesses. For example, businesses like Berkshire Hathaway or Washington Hates, Old Pattinson, which you would look at the book value or the value of the assets CAGR. So you can do that in multiple ways and you can even look at it for ETFs. Like how is the total return being the dividends plus the growth over time? Drew, I don't know if there's anything else to add there.
1: I added it to, just being a question for you. So, and there's different, you can basically do a kaggar of anything, like do a kaggar of revenue, kaggar of profit. Uh, and essentially you just want to note like Macquarie Group would be the perfect, I think, example of kaggar, isn't it? Where mm. they've made a profit every year for 50 years or so, yeah. something forever. Uh, and I think that's what 100 baggers would be looking for, something that's compounding every year and, and whether that's sustainable going forward. Um, but you go back yeah. to Milk Run and the issue with, cargo of revenue only is that um, if you're not making profit, well, people might not want to buy your stock at the end. It's hard hard to be a hundred bagger.
0: Yeah, you can use it for anything, but you definitely want to, you don't just want to look at growth for growth's sake. Um, And if we do measure growth, it's really important to measure growth over a five to 10 year period, not one to two years, which a lot of newer investors tend to fall into because if you do that, you will probably not be identifying structural growth, but more so cyclical growth, which is not what you're after, and it's not what Christopher Mayer was referring to at 100 baggers, or even any of the others that have studied multi-bagger type investments. So, this next one is—it's important that I pronounce this correctly. <laughs> the first name, the first name, is pronounced F-A-R-K, and the surname is M-A-Y. So, Fark May. Says hi, N- and <laughs> NFI N- re investing. <laughs> if you can Google, you, you can Google what NFI means in internet slang or the urban dictionary. Hi, NFI reinvesting. It was suggested that DRP <laughs> isn't worthwhile as you have no control over the price you pay. How does this differ from dollar cost averaging? Confused so <laughs> the question. I uh, drew said in a previous uh, episode or installment that. If you just do the dividend reinvestment plan or the distribution reinvestment plan, it automatically happens and you don't have any control over what happens in terms of the price that you pay. So, Drew, this person is confused.
1: You know, I forget that people listen to us sometimes. <laughs> 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 uh,
0: that's what my first comment to that was people
1: are really listening um, and <laughs> picking up on what we're saying. Uh, I think, I mean, it is similar, similar and I kind of get where the comparison comes from. The, when I think about dollar cost averaging, I think about dollar cost averaging into into diversified range of investments, not into an individual stock. So it's more likely to be into an index or into a portfolio. In that case, you're buying multiple assets at multiple prices, not just one at the same price. Uh, and I think part of the one of the we didn't go into it on detail in the last one, but one of the big things with dividend reinvestment, I think it's become more obvious the last few years, particularly when it comes to ETFs, that if you're reinvesting the dividends. Of the, of every company, but some are so every asset, but some are performing better than others. The high performing assets get more money put back into them, and in many cases, last year's perfect example. If you were reinvesting, you would have bought a lot more of BHP and Rio and Fortescue. You you can actually be buying high, mm. and forcibly buying high, uh, and not in not having that discretion of where it's going, and eventually you end up having a portfolio that's overweight to the top performers, the recent top performers, and underweight. Uh, to everything else. That's what we're always we're about wary of. We prefer to get the cash in the bank and deploy it where it's appropriate. Maybe that comes from the fact that we focus on retirees. So we want to manage cash flow and then redeploy and rebalance portfolios consistently.
0: Mm. So I, I was wrong. might be the answer. No, yeah, yeah. no, no, that's fair. That's good. Honesty is, is, is important. I I have a slightly different view actually on this. I think dividend reinvestment plans are fine for ETFs, to be honest. I think, I think they're acceptable, but I do not. So we do I disagree do, occasionally, but I do not, I do not use them for individual stocks for the reason that um, I just like to be more t- uh, like, I just need to be a bit more, I guess, conscious of valuations when it comes to individual stocks. But that's a great yeah. question. I think, um, I think I, I take your point as well, but I typically handle a lot of those things for rebalancing anyway, which is only typically minor around the edges, but it, yeah, we talked about it before when it's 5%, 5% or so. So up and to the right says, you might have touched on this before, but is there any technology and software that can easily keep track on investments and or you can easily give to your paper pusher that shows the ordinary income losses entitlements? I know there is share site, but is there any that can track private investments, dividends, equity, forecasted income, basic investment vehicle, i.e. super trust, et cetera? Drew, this is more of a financial planning question. I know you guys have some tools. (laughs) Well, it is because they're trying to track like investments that might not be from the stock exchange. Yeah.
1: yeah, it is one of those difficult ones because the, the quality of tools isn't great in Australia. I think they're much better overseas. So we have a system that we can basically track any single asset. We can put a price on any asset and track income and growth, internal rate of return, simple, every type of return you want to, and dividends. That's called X-Plan, but it's only available to financial advisors. Um, I don't, I think you, unfortunately, I think you either have to run it separately. So through an ASX listed one and then export that and add your private market stuff onto a, Mm. Excel spreadsheet. <laughs> that was um, very hard. I, <laughs> I honestly don't think I don't think there are many other options. I think I have got a call after one of these podcasts in the past about platforms, but a lot of them are just ASX, widely traded managed funds, ETFs, and that's it. And the, and being able to create a an unlisted product is very difficult for them.
0: Yeah. So yeah. I think Excel is probably the way to go most people don't have that many private investments for an individual account. So it's probably reasonable just to do private, uh, to do your own Excel spreadsheet. But um, Novexa is another one that you can use for shares, I believe. Um, And some of our members, uh, shout out to Owen Quinn, uh, who's suggested this before, an SLT um, inside RASC. Um, You can use that as well for just general stuff. But uh, I think, NetWealth has been working on it. Harbour has been working on these unlisted assets. I just don't know how sophisticated they are because I don't use them. Um, good question, though. Robert Kimosabi says – This is a maybe, this is a diehard joke, right? I think so. I was trying to figure out where I knew this from, but I think it's also a play on Robert Kiyosaki. The oh, the Rich, dad poor, rich dad
1: poor Dad? The one that yes. comes out and says the market's going to crash all the time?
0: Yeah, the the guy on Twitter that's just like, yeah. I'm like nice every time a book that he wrote. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, go slow. No, it's gonna crash. It's gonna go. It's gonna crash. It's gonna go. Yeah, yeah. It's uh, if you have read the Robert Kiyosaki book, jump onto his Twitter and have a look and just have a have a. It's like the barefoot is investor true.
1: becoming. Uh, yeah. What's he called? Uh, not Mark Faber, the other guy. Doctor Doom. He? Yeah, Dr. Doom, and there's another one. It's like the barefoot investor becoming the, the doom yeah. the doom and gloomsayer of the world. It's kinda of, yeah. <laughs>
0: massive turnaround. Um we, and this is a great question because it's more of a statement. Context Kim. It's not context king. <laughs> can we blow up all the share registry stuff again? <laughs> we don't
1: advocate blowing anything up. Yeah, It's no gotta blowing. be a diehard reference if he's talking about blowing things up. That's I feel definitely.
0: Like. It's definitely going to be it. Um, Now I have a gun. Ho, ho, ho. I think that was the line from (laughs) Harm. So I know there is no other option at the moment, but why are they so difficult to deal with? Can someone out there, maybe Andrew Derrameth, (laughs) Derrimeth, come in and shake up the industry and make it easier for investors? Love the podcast. Keep up the good work. So I don't actually know if that was a question or not, but...
1: I think everyone you talk to hates the registries and that's why they've been reasonable investments, Link, Computer Share and those things. They they just basically hold on to other people's money while the dividends are yet to be paid and take a clip and then everything is so manual still. Um, It's hard to not get a paper statement and then you have to go and log in to add everything individually for a new holding that you get. So, I mean, we, we deal with about 180 clients at any given time. Um, So, and a lot of, and historically, every one of them had their own HIN uh, and not on a platform. So, imagine doing, helping with a stock holding at 15 stocks, 10 ETFs with seven different registries. Uh, You can imagine how crazy that is and how much paper we have flying around. I think maybe part of the issue is to do with the chess system. So, ASX has been trying to update the chess system, maybe because that's such a dinosaur that it's hard to change the registries at the front. I'm giving some benefit of the doubt there, but it's also, you know, why the likes of Hub24 net wealth share prices have been so so strong is because at a platform like Hub24 and the, and CFS and the, the other ones are able to consolidate all that paperwork into one place for a fee, yes, but then they're able to um, give you a consolidated tax report mm. and you don't have to ever log into four different places to give your tax file number.
0: So good. I think that's why Um, they've
1: been, but they, yeah, they charge a platform fee, obviously.
0: I, yeah, there's, it's, some brokers now allow you to select things like email preferences over paper preferences. Some brokers that have been been a bit more innovative in that space have been able to ease some of the paperwork, but, you know, it's, they're just really archaic systems, really convoluted. And at the end of the day, like, it's just DRPs tax file numbers, bank account details.
1: I blame the ASX.
0: Yeah, I mean, yeah, like the the ASX obviously has like the national security and technology infrastructure at heart, but then the share registries need the ASX and then the brokers need the share registries. And it's just like this, and then the investors need the brokers. Like like who's gonna start with change, right? And that's why it took years to get email statements. It's crazy. Okay, good question, more of a rant, but. Appreciate it. <laughs> this next one is easily in my top three question names, question and names of all time. Because. All the, time. All time. Because, Andrew. This is this the Sydney effect? Yes. Uh, air <laughs> uh, up here on level three. I'm just a bit like. Space. Open fridge. <laughs> no, but if you think about it, right, last week we made a comment that we quote Morgan Housel so much that he may as well be our co-host. So, and then this question has come through, and the it comes from. I don't people I, listen. Did you know that? <laughs> it comes from. Can I sleep over at Morgan's house? So, solid. It. I love it. I love. It. I just think it's so good. Maybe it's because I quote Morgan so much. But um, can I sleep over at Morgan's house? says. Hi, Owen and Drew. If you had to design a portfolio around no more than three to five ETFs, what would they be? And in roughly what allocation? Your goal in this hypothetical is to create a simple share portfolio you can continue to invest into that will fund your lifestyle in retirement, either by dividends or selling shares in 30 years' time. So we have to be very, very careful here um, because the, the reason that we have to be very, very careful with this is because if we say this and then thousands of people act on it, they could perceive it as like a model portfolio that's built for them when a lot of the stuff that we talk about is strictly general in nature. And what may be right for me is not necessarily right for anyone else. But Drew, maybe if you have some general thoughts, and I can drop a couple of names in here as well.
1: Yeah, I think I emailed you my uh, kind of yeah, awesome question. I think I emailed my broad ETF model yeah. to you before. Well, I think you asked me for that three weeks ago. So <laughs> apologies for the delay. Uh, used to leading emails with that. Um, I think that, well, you can, the good question, the good answer here is that you can build all kinds of portfolios because there's something like two hundred and forty. Australian ETFs available, available to pick from um, and you can active and passive options. So if without saying specifically which ones I'd buy, I think if you wanted to have a reasonably set and forget, I personally want some active and some passive in there. I'm mm-hmm. I'm okay with that cost and I want some kind of thematic exposures, but you'd, generally you want a ballast in terms of government bonds, wherever that's from, just an index Aussie or global. It doesn't, wouldn't bother me. You go one of the big, three and you'll be fine. A broad-based Aussie and a broad-based global exposure. Um, Some people prefer MSCI. So that's the broad global index. Some people prefer the S&P 500. IVV, yep. IVV, so that's the biggest and that only does the US, whereas the MSCI will include some European,
0: bigger allocation,
1: European and Japanese companies. Uh, And personally, I'd usually add a couple of tilts in there because I think if you're going to have a pretty set and forget, you want some of that working actively behind you and following the momentum or themes that are occurring. So to me, that's like still tech and still Asia, not those specific ticket codes <laughs> but those sectors technology and asian asian equities <laughs> just make that clear i'm not saying buy those two
0: um
1: we, we, it's gonna there's gonna be everything you say can be taken as a recommendation
0: in the future there's gonna be so many ticket symbols for etfs that we're just gonna say a word any three or four letter word <laughs> and you're think it's an etf
1: <laughs> We haven't even yeah. opened up to global ones yet there's gonna be a flood for sure Oh yeah, there's a new um, one today. Was it Mirai?
0: Yeah, Global X. Was X X? Yeah, so that was actually I because I speak to the guys every now and again. I actually know what that was, which might be of interest to you. Which is, it's like the Aussie Australian share market X Resources X Financials. So it's a true true diversified. But the interesting thing is that came from a client request, like a financial planner's request. And they thought, well, maybe more people want this, so yeah. that, I thought that was quite interesting. Um, Yeah, so I couldn't agree more with everything that Drew just said. Um, I still like to have a few individual stocks here and there, but they definitely wouldn't be my three to five ETFs. Um, Obviously, you'd have to have Aussie equities. You'd have to have probably Aussie bonds, global bonds, and global shares. Like, that's already four or five. So, like, those major buckets, and we do this for our members, Drew. Like, in our... Membership, Rascore, people can go in there. There's a link in the show notes. It's like 99 cents. So if you, can I sleep over at Morgan's house? Or if you, um, if you want to see what I actually recommend, you can look at that. Um, but but I would just say like we, I use the IVV ETF instead of VGS because I prefer the American kind of, I guess, ecosystem in terms of property rights and globalization and all that, I, which also has a lot of tech in it. Um, I I like the VAS ETF even though it's not the cheapest. Still, um, I just think that's a good diversifier. It's got the extra one hundred shares, which I don't mind. Um, and maybe I'll just keep it at that for now. But then, like in the bond space, we've talked about this before. You mentioned different uh, ETFs there, but plenty of bond ETFs in Australia. I think the most popular one for Aussie fixed interest. I could be wrong. I think it's the biggest is IAF from iShares and the biggest global one, VGS. V-bond, I think. v yeah. yeah. I think, I think the,
1: it's, the, the key yeah. with bonds is that you're not necessarily buying them for the capital growth. You're buying them just to not have cash, and then you might sell them in a recession to buy something else. So it's yeah. always just having that little, that little buffer.
0: Yeah, for sure. Um, okay, I think we've got time for three more questions, Drew. So I might um, be selective on these last ones here, but there's a really good one, which I do like this name, so I just want to read it early, uh, which is uh, this one right here is, the Dread Pirate Deremuth. <laughs> I like this. For those that don't know, um, a love, this one says love, <laughs> love the odd and the split personality. But I'm going to put you on the spot here because you put me on the spot with Andrew Deremuth way back in the day. Do you know what this is a play on?
1: No, I do not. The oh, no, I, I, okay. I assume it's an old movie that I can't remember.
0: So the Dread Pirate Roberts was the creator, the name of the dark web... So the website that was in the dark web called Silk Road. Oh, no. And you could go there to get drugs and all this sort of stuff. And it was a whole series of it And it was an Australian guy. And um, the Dread Pirate Roberts was his name. That was his moniker. You are the you according to this questioner is that, ah, the Dread Pirate Darymouth, Which You don't know what it. the dark web is. It's <laughs> <right>. <laughs> Ever been there? <laughs> Ever seen that? <laughs> Dot Onion. Is how you think, yeah, mate. <laughs> Dot Onion. Um, okay. So... Um, the question goes on to say, I like Licks, and in particular I do like MMF MFF. That's the ticker symbol for the Magellan flagship fund. They say that has a large holding in Visa and MasterCard, which was bought much, which was bought much cheaper, presumably meaning a large tax overhang if they sell their holding question mark. Is this something I need to factor in to a valuation of the stock? Or is it the or is it that pre-baked into the post-tax NTA? And I should use that more than the usual pre-tax NTFs. There's a lot of pre-post-tax questioning going on here, Drew. The basic question is the MFF Lick is a company that owns these shares. And those shares were bought at much lower prices, meaning that if they sold them, they would incur tax. Do you consider that when you would look at a Lick? Not that you look at them that often, but if you did, would you consider that?
1: I think you have to consider it for all ETFs. That you think about, but I think there's there's two different licks. parts to this question. ETF licks, yeah. yeah. Um, when you when you look at the NTA, it's basically saying this is what the value of these assets are if we sold them all today, mm-hmm. minus the tax, is my understanding. Yeah,
0: yeah, exactly. That's the, but the that's thing is,
1: to you're never gonna like that's what the true value is. So you want to be buying at a discount to the, or around that, not too much higher generally. But the thing is that that portfolio is never going to be entirely sold. Um, and it doesn't directly tell you what the capital gains tax that is going to be distributed is either. So yes, they might have had Visa and MasterCard for a while, but how much of that are they actually trading in any given year is actually going to be more relevant to the capital gains distribution that comes out of the lick at the lick or ETF lick in this case at the end of the year. So I think most of these aren't overly active uh, from leaks generally. Mm. ETFs probably have a bit more trading. Um so I'd, I'd say you can't, so you can't tell too much from it. You more want to understand, if you look at the flagship fund, maybe you go look at the global and the other funds and understand what t- sort of turnover they have and what sort of capital gains they're likely to realise as a result.
0: Mm. And just make sure that you are, when you make this decision and you do look at this stuff, you are looking at the, I guess, you're actually looking at um, the most recent numbers. A lot of people look at this in their uh, brokerage account and they compare like uh, the numbers like price to book ratio and all this sort of stuff, not realizing that the NTA or the, the value of things inside it aren't isn't always updated that quickly. So you should be keeping a track on that and just making sure that you know exactly what everything is worth inside. I yep. love to see love to see that the dread pirate Deremuth is also a RAS core member. So kudos. Um, okay, two more questions, Drew. We'll be quick here. Retire early and die broke says. I've been seriously thinking of retiring from the workforce to get away from the nine to five and focus more on my side hustle. I'm 45, married with two young adult children who are fully, de- we're fully dependent. We own our home and about have about 400 k in cash. My wife wants to keep working and earn some money. Um, I'll be giving up a pretty good salary, but that's a sacrifice I'm happy to make at this point in my life. We live on a modest lifestyle. Um then it goes on to say there's a few other things in here. Do you think I'm crazy for walking away from a, from the security of a solid job based on the assets we ha- currently have? Or is this a decent financial base to start from my transition? Now, we can't actually answer whether or not it's right for you. And this is a seriously big question. So make sure you get professional advice who can, from someone who can take into account your uh, lifestyle. But retire early and die broke. I'll just lend some thoughts here is that, at any one time it's a balance it's a balance between spending money saving money and investing and living your life and for everyone it will be different there's a great book um you know uh there's many great books but there's one i think it's got four thousand hours uh, there's another great book called um what's the one with uh, bill perkins uh the one where you basically it, it's oh, i can't remember the name of it drew it's it's a book from Bill Perkins. I can't remember the title of the book, but basically the concept is that Die With Zero is what it's called. It's a book where you it explains that you should live your life um, according to how you want to live it and expect that you are going to die and you may die with zero amount to give on to your children, but at least you live a full life. Um, and so there's many... In YOLO. Yellow just can't take it with you, so you might as well just spend you it. You also don't know when you're going to die. That's the biggest challenge. But that's it too. Yeah, you could live forever. Uh, so, if AI has its way. So, Drew, not taking into account their personal circumstances, but just generally, how do you think about this?
1: I mean, you always got to start with lifestyle. And if you're considering retiring, it probably means you're not particularly happy, or not retiring, but stepping away from nine to five, means you're probably not getting fulfillment out of your uh, job. So, maybe that's the question, not necessarily the financial position. You're saying you can earn a similar salary doing your side hustle compared to your main job. Well, um, no, it doesn't sound too out there. I think I looked at, found some data that said how much, because you they've got close to a million dollars, it would seem to be tax uh, kind of without any debt. So, mm-hmm. and if you look, and this is the issue, the challenge is that a million dollars retiring at 60 will last until you're 90 mm-hmm. if you're drawing 60 80. Or if you're drawing $60,000 yeah, or thereabouts per year or $50,000 on 2%. So the problem is if you're retiring at 45, you're bringing that forward by 15 years. So at more likely this would be more of a lifestyle discussion that you're probably in a strong enough position to consider alternatives and find work that is more enjoyable uh, and reposition and keep saving for the next 10 years because the more you save and the longer you're at work, if it's enjoyable, the more flexibility you have in the future and the higher probability that you outlast, you you don't outlast your money um, Mm. because die with zero is great, but staying alive and having 10 years of zero is not really what people want. You know, no. like when you run out of money with ten years before you die, that's kind of the opposite of what you want. So I, th-
0: I think the general gist is that you should make, you should live a happy life now. So you don't want to sacrifice everything right now because there may be things that you can't do when you're at that age that you can do now. And so that trade-off is simply it's a better scenario to be in that situation where you can take advantage now. And that's unique um, are-
1: to the current environment too. Like, yeah, sure. You know, ten years sure. ago, you'd never talk about a side hustle.
0: Well, this, so I'm just going to pull out one piece of information. So this person is giving up a pretty good salary and going down to a side hustle that makes $50,000 already. So I think this is an important distinction because this person is doing a side hustle that already makes money. A lot of people, when they think about this dream, they're not at that point. They just dream of it. So the fact that it's already de-risked by knowing that it, the side hustle is actually a thing I think from a lifestyle perspective, that's a much, much better thing. And, hey, you can always go back to your job if that's what you want to do. Um, Drew, there might be just one final question, which I um, just I did not fully understand this one. Um, my eyes, these stock market goggles, do nothing, um, chaps. This may be a silly basic question. I am looking at a couple of government bond ETFs and a couple of corporate bond ETFs. How much attention should I be paying to a bond's credit rating? Question mark a bit, is probably fair to say, because that will impact
1: the yield. But- yeah, I think in, in what you're looking at there, it's kind of, you're talking about government bonds, which most government bond ETFs, ETFs are tracking indices and US Treasury and Australian Treasuries dominate those indices. So you're really going to have a rating that's below A. And then if you look at the what why credit ratings are important is because of the default rates that come with lower credit ratings. Yeah. But even in the worst case, I think it was something like 4% of D or E rated bonds or C or D rated bonds uh, defaulted in the worst of the GFC and other periods. So I don't think they matter as much when you're looking at government bonds, but it's more about understanding the risk you're taking and whether you're getting the right level of reward, which is what you're referring to. So as mm. your credit rating goes down, you should naturally be expecting a higher level of income from that uh, source for from that type of bond. Because the yeah, credit rating is just how much default risk is.
0: Yeah, so the credit ratings go from like AAA down to BBB typically for down right down to just completely, it's gone bust. Um, yeah. And these are made by Standard & Poor's, Moody's, et cetera. And you, if you watch the big short, you know what we're talking about. Uh, I would just say that um, there is, the thing that Jamie was uh, teaching me last year was that the way to think about this is like, there is a credit table that shows historically what uh, default rates have been in percentage terms. If you Google S&P default uh, credit rating table or something like this, it will come up with a table that shows you the percentage defaults by each um, like rating. So it's like BBB, what's the rating percentage of default the default at that rating. And what you can use that for that number is you can actually take that away from the yield so if you have 10% yield minus that say 3% default, maybe that gives you a 7% look through, which is a way it is to think about the risk versus reward. So obviously a higher default rate is more likely to lead to a lower net yield that you get as an investor. I think that's one way to just conceptualize this.
1: And it's a similar uh, thing that we do in other other asset classes where yeah. at the top level, you're probably all right using something close to the index in the high-rated stuff. But as soon as you go down towards the lower-rated, that's when active management and, you know, understanding the companies you're lending money to becomes more important. So it's Mm. one of our, I think, our 10 rules was it's not active versus passive, it's active and passive.
0: Yep, absolutely. Well, Mr. Deremuth, this is about all we've got time for today. There is one final thing that we need to do. We need to pick the name
1: who oh, one other thing, too. You always forget that part. It's like it's not oh, the most important part man, of the day.
0: Gosh, please forgive me. <laughs> I think people so look my, forward to
1: this all week, Owen.
0: my, my there are so many good and question, uh, names this week, like so many, from Unpack That to Fuck May and Robert <laughs> Um My two favourite are the Dread Pirate Dermuth and Can I Sleep Over at Morgan's Household. Um, Drew, what were your votes?
1: I'm... Um, a big Simpsons fan, so I didn't mind my eyes, these stock market goggles do nothing. That's a reference to, uh, oh, I can't, my brain is not working today either.
0: Yeah, I know um, the one that you're
1: talking about. <laughs> McBain, 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 yep. yep.
0: Yes, yeah, my eyes, these goggles do nothing. <laughs> yes. But I reckon it's, uh,
1: I gotta go with Morgan's hassle.
0: Okay, so why don't we do this, have a bit of fun. Of okay. If you ask any of these three questions, you're more than welcome to email us and you'll get a pass to the Value Investor Program. It's all yours. Um, and without further ado, we usher in Andrew Dermith to give us the joke.
1: When my father dies, this is kind of relevant because my dad's doing his will at the moment. Okay. He wants his, thats a bit dark, but he wants his ashes pressed into a record. It was his vinyl
0: request. <laughs> and you know why I'm joking is because Good I... Use the same joke on cell phone. <laughs> really? like, You're stealing my bit. I didn't even get it. Mel chose it for the show.
1: We have to do a shout out to Andrew as well. Remember? Yes. Uh, yes. Who I've heard yells at Owen when he's talking <laughs> <laughs> on, on a radio in the car. So. Uh, <laughs>
0: um, and also Andrew Deremuth will be appearing on Bloomberg Live TV in a few weeks. We have... Rumors are circling. Uh, Watch this space. But, mate, heaps of fun. As always, people can get in contact with you for financial planning or portfolio construction or just ask questions um, by following the link in their podcast player. It says financial planning. Check out modelpartners.com.au. Jamie, Drew, Shana and the team, Renato, everyone there. Uh, It's a great place. So check those out. You can find me at Owen Rask on Twitter. Mate, see you at Future Proof. Thanks for joining me. Good to see you.